Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Will Foxley. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Christine. Welcome back to Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. My name is Christine Kim. I'm a research analyst at Coindesk. And I'm Will Foxley, a tech reporter at Coindesk. Today, we're going to be discussing the state of Ethereum 2.0, the network, and ETH2 development with Danny Ryan. Great to have you on the show, Danny. Yeah, thanks for having me. So last time we had you on for a Coindesk podcast, Danny, you had said the launch, this phase zero that we're now in of Ethereum 2.0 development would be the most technically challenging of them all to pull off, which is why I really have to start by congratulating you for how smooth and according to plan the last two months have been after the launch of Ethereum 2.0. Were you surprised at all by how smoothly things went? Thank you. Um, It's... (laughs) We were very confident going in, but it's been excellent to see it go so well. Were there actually any surprises that came after the first few hours or even minutes after you guys sent the network live? I mean, the first surprise was that it was running well. No, I'm just joking. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it, compared to some of our, our testnet launches, they got better and better, but the mainnet launch was more successful than any of those. So like to see a high percentage participation was in the 80% at the beginning was a relief, maybe not quite a surprise. To see it climb over the next few hours into the 90, you know, upper 90% and, and stay there and just be stable. Again, not a surprise, but a relief. It's been interesting to see kind of dynamically how stakers engage with it, feedback going more in kind of the engineering direction, uh, continued optimizations and, and stabilization. But there's not a ton to say, which is a very good thing. No, no, we have a lot to talk about, even if the network is going very smoothly. And I will say, honestly, we're what, like six weeks now later and the network participation rate, which is the metric that kind of evaluates how many of the the active validators are actually doing their jobs. It's still at like 98%, like near perfect levels. Yeah, I mean, I looked at it today and there's, it was 99.4, which I think is the highest I've ever seen. It's funny, there's, there's like, 40 Genesis validators, which is a non-trivial amount of money. I mean, that's 1,200 ETH and that's over a million dollars of uh, capital. There are people that, that have deposited and never done anything, which is, the, I guess that's kind of a surprise to me. Clearly, there's something at stake and people care. And that's why we have such a high percentage, especially compared to some of the test sets we saw. But there are still like these very irrational characters that like made deposits, might have lost keys, but might just like not know what they're doing, you know, just kind of toss some stuff in there. That's kind of an interesting tidbit, maybe not quite a surprise. Okay, I'm going to go off the beaten path because we had some questions lined up. Normally when these podcasts happen, the best questions come to you in the middle of the conversation. So we're talking about like the deposit contract. There's like a lot of other random tokens in there. What would you do with those tokens if you could just pick where they go? Should they go to like the Ethereum Foundation? Should they just be like sent out to other validators? Should you get them because of your hard work? (laughs) <laughs> uh, in general, uh, like if there's, well, for one, I, I can't make that type of decision and they're just totally locked. So uh, they are it's, it's a moot point, but supporting client funding is a big deal. And if people want to accidentally send their tokens to uh, the client tip jars instead of to the deposit contract, by all means, tip your client that you run 
help support them. Uh, they're, they're doing some killer work. Yeah. I think my favorite token I saw, was like a waifu token, which is tells you about how the Ethereum or a cryptocurrency, uh, but we'll get away from that question and get back to what we were supposed to be talking about. And I want to talk about network validators. So I think Prism, 50% of validators or something like that are using Prism. And on ETH, ETH1X, uh, I think like 85% right. of nodes are running on Geth, which we saw that being an issue in like November when there was like an accidental issue with Geth. And uh, I'm assuming that's what you guys are trying to like protect against here in this situation. Can the developers, can like the ETH R&D team really do anything to stop people from running on Prism's client? Or is it coming out of the client teams to incentivize people to run with them? I mean, I, I've beaten the drum and I will continue beating the drum that client diversity is not only good for the network, but it can be kind of a selfishly motivated decision in that if a major client goes down and you're on a minority client, you would suffer much less than if your minority client went down and uh, the major client stayed up. So is there anything we can do? There are kind of some fundamental incentives that help promote this type of diversity, but a lot of these actually only kind of come out in the tail risk scenarios. So we can do what we can to educate, but uh, it might take an incident uh, for people to realize there might be a little bit more at stake than they, than they thought. I will say though, it looks like 50% of nodes on the network are PRISM. It doesn't necessarily map one-to-one to the staked value behind each client. This is a little bit more opaque because you can generally kind of walk around on the network and get a view into what the node landscape looks like. Can't so easily see what's behind those nodes, like what value is secured behind those nodes. And so it's probably reasonable to assume there might be a similar mapping. And so 50% of the stake value might be that way, but you could also have some, some weird stuff. Like I know a staking provider that's relatively large and uses a minority client. So like some of that kind of stuff would throw the distribution off. All that to say, I'm a little bit more optimistic the distribution might look a little bit better, but um, yeah. it's not quite where we want it to be. And I'll say time and time again, there are four fantastic clients out there. I don't run Prism in my own setup and I'm stable and happy. Good to hear. <laughs> Speaking of the stake that is behind these nodes, there's this beta version of Etherscan that shows that among the active validators, which I think is over 70,000 active validators on Ethereum 2.0 now, about 50% of people who have staked these validators, about 50% are made up of cryptocurrency exchanges and staking pools. So you had said that you know for the nodes, 50% isn't exactly where you had wanted the client distribution to be at, but for the cryptocurrency exchanges and staking pools, it making up about 50% of active validators. Was that something you had more or less expected? Did you expect more independent validators, you know, starting off launching the Ethereum 2.0 network? And how do you think that these numbers are going to change as the network continues to mature? And for some more context, like outside of the 50% of crypto exchanges and staking pools, about 30% is made up of the exchanges, while 20% is just the pools. So, so yeah. one just kind of educational point is that in ETH2, we have this notion of a validator, which is kind of just a consensus entity. It's an entity in the protocol, and they are 32 ETH entities. Um, and so if I, as a staker, which I often separate the term staker and validator, if I'm a staker, like a user, I would, and I had multiple units of 32 ETH, I'm ultimately run multiple validators in the protocol. So if I have 64 ETH, I want to stake, I have two validators. And so when we talk about these 
these large exchanges and entities like they are by all means kind of a single entity a staker but they control many of these smaller consensus entities and so mm-hmm. when the, while there are 70,000 validators on the network there's something more on the order of thousands of of stakers so just a, a point there I, I know that you probably understand that but for the audience how does this distribution map to my expectations first and foremost i think that there are far more hobbyists uh, and, and solo stakers and, and small entities that participate in this protocol than likely any other staking protocol, uh, like layer one staking protocol today. I haven't 100% validated that, but we went through painstaking means to allow you to participate uh, with relatively small amounts of Ether and to be able to run this stuff on, on hobbyist and kind of home setups. As we know, that's a technical challenge to run a node uh, to commit to kind of a long period of time having like hardware run live get in the command line, set up your security, all that kind of stuff. And, and although the staking community is, I think, very large, uh, go check out like the ETH staker discord. It's very active. There's hundreds, probably well over a thousand people who are involved in this stuff. There is always this market of people that have ETH and really don't want to go through those uh, technical hurdles, even if it's going to cost them some amount in terms of like the total reward they get. And so, yes, it's very much expected that we're going to see exchanges and institutional players Uh, kind of come in here and be large entities. Trying to think of what my expectations were. It probably matches reasonably to my expectations. I'm very, very excited about the hobbyist staking community. um, And I think that it's it's a win to have them as large as possible. You know, presumably they might be over 33% today and could be kind of approaching that 40% plus number. If we can retain there, I think that it's like uh, definitely a big win. But I do think that institutional players are going to be like a part of these systems no matter what. I'm looking at this graph, and although I, we see some large players like Binance and Kraken are very significant, if we kind of move past that, there are a lot of players. The more institutional providers you say they're going to take up over 50%, the more of them, the better. Uh, the more geopolitically diversified, the better. The more different types of offerings, the better. You know, some of these guys, some of them are more of non custodial solutions, some of them are more pooled solutions where uh, they have like a number of different operators and kind of like round robin as you jump in with your 32 ETH or, or portions of it, they kind of get allocated across these different operators with different incentives. So I, I'm going to say it's inevitable. I'm going to say that the distribution does look pretty reasonable today. I think that people should know that by participating in a very large player, for example, Kraken, uh, which is 14.5% of the network, although they are very professional and probably very good operators, if something does go wrong with their setup, the amount of capital that you might lose is uh, much higher than if you were to jump in with one of these smaller players that have you know, more than like 2% of the network. And so even if you're not going to be a hobbyist and you are going to jump into this, uh, there are considerations to maybe not go with the largest provider there. And in yeah. doing so, making a selfish decision uh, to not have as much risk in the tail risk scenario, uh, improving kind of the diversity of the network. And for everybody that is listening, you'll find a link to that Etherscan chart that we're talking about in today's show notes. So if you're curious, you can also take a look. I expect that as the validator community continues to grow, I mean, I think we're adding like what, close to 900 new validators per day on the network. As this validator pool continues to grow, as more people jump in on this community, like those whales probably won't have as much of the pie because right now the pie is small, right. but I just, I hope that as the pie grows, and maybe this is your question, uh, that the hobbyist community continues to grow 
I do still have, you know, I even have like friends from home in Louisiana that knock on my door and they're like, Hey, we're thinking about staking, which you have like hard recommendations, which is, which is great. The fact that um, I think we're going to see these institutional players grow uh, the fact that there are still hobbyists that are interested in, and might kind of compete by keeping the pie pie larger on that side um, is, is very good, but sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. What was your no, that was definitely what I was going at. You're reading my mind here, Danny. Um, no, that's good. But going back to the question, which I'm going to rephrase now because you did answer it slightly. So as these validator numbers grow, obviously there's like a certain minimum amount of validators that you want to hit before moving on to the next phase of development, phase one of Ethereum 2.0. I'm curious to know, is that the next big hurdle for Ethereum 2.0 development or is there something that comes before phase one activation that developers right now are working on, planning for, and kind of still developing. I would encourage the audience and yourself, if you haven't, I should have sent it to you before this, to read. I just put out a blog post uh, last week called The State of ETH 2, January 2021. Uh, it's very much my perspective on things, uh, but it would be probably complementary to, to the content that we're going to talk about here. Yes, there are a number of things that we're working on. Largely, those things are an iterative upgrade in the middle of this year, which would clean up a couple of things and kind of state management, some more technical side things, uh, and also add a nice feature which enables light clients as kind of a first class citizen uh, for the beacon chain. Light clients being, I could follow the beacon chain in like a very computational light way without fully validating everything, but still having pretty strong security guarantees that my understanding about the state of the world is correct. Um, so that that's being actively specified and uh, discussed and worked on amongst client teams. So that's kind of one of the things. This is you can think of this also as a kind of a warm up upgrade uh, before we get to some of these larger features, uh, sharding, which is often called phase one, and the merge, which is often called phase one point five. Um, mm -hmm. You know, those are more much more substantial. And so, like to get into the rhythm of being able to upgrade and modify the system, uh, that's another one of the goals to to accomplish mid year. Um, and also before one of these larger upgrades, sharding and the merge, uh, can occur. I think we also just want to observe, um, observe, test and analyze, uh, the stability of this consensus mechanism, the beacon chain that was launched. Um, and so one of the base requirements in my opinion, uh, is, is quite simply time, um, like time being out there for bugs to be uncovered, uh, for bounty hunters to dig in for potentially attackers to show up. Obviously, um, there is a lot at stake, much ETH at stake, uh, but there's not a lot of user activity. And so like, you know, some attacks might occur, but I don't know if we're going to see a lot of that this year. Uh, but those are the things before we get into those larger upgrades, which again, are the merge and sharding, doing some, some iterative work, some security work, some minor upgrades and observations and testing. Gotcha. That's good for both Will and I to know uh, what to keep an eye on too for the next couple months. Yeah, yep. for sure. And a follow up on that. So I'm always peeking around in Discord. And I saw this morning that uh, the Ice Age is kind of a discussion point for ETH2. So can you kind of walk us through what the Ice Age is for ETH1X mm -hmm. and then how you guys are working with it in ETH2? Right. So the Ice Age is this interesting mechanism that's been in Ethereum since the Genesis, I believe. If it wasn't at the Genesis, it was added pretty soon after. What happens, I guess from a technical perspective, uh, there's this rule in the consensus that mining gets inordinately more difficult over time once you hit like a certain date. And what this does is 
uh, it ends up being practically, there's this part in the protocol that says, uh, if you don't upgrade the protocol, if you don't like fork the rules to fix this, then the protocol will become useless. And this was put in there as a forcing function to prevent stagnation in the Ethereum protocol in the early days. And I think at first it was advertised as like a, a forcing function to get proof of stake in there. We've been through a number of ice ages. When they remove one, uh, developers in the community have uh, in general added another one, call it year and a half, two years down the line. So obviously it didn't serve its first initial purpose to get proof of stake in there uh, You know, after a year and a half of the protocol running. Obviously that problem ended up being a little bit more difficult than expected, but it has served this interesting like point at which it is a little bit of a forcing function to keep the protocol from, from stagnating, which in the long run might be actually be a good thing, uh, you know, ossification of the protocol. But in the short run, I think we developers, researchers, and the Ethereum community uh, want to reach this kind of like functional escape velocity uh, in terms of like the features and scalability and security of the system. And we're not quite there. So the Ice Age has been useful there. I haven't read Discord this morning. So you uh, commented though. <laughs> oh, no. Well, yeah, you're right. That was a couple of days ago. I didn't know if there was uh, okay. some more discussion. Oh, yeah, you're right. Actually, I responded to somebody this morning in Discord, but I don't think I read everything. Yeah, it was, it was on Friday. So, right now, we have these kind of two parallel systems that are Ethereum. We have uh, ETH1X, we have Ethereum, the proof of work chain that we know and love. And parallel to that, the Ethereum community has bootstrapped this new proof of stake consensus called the Beacon Chain. The Beacon Chain is intended to be Ethereum's home in the long run, to be, to hot swap the proof of work consensus for that of the Beacon Chain. Um, and to, in addition to coming to consensus on this kind of like fundamental user chain that we know and love called ETH1X, uh, to also extend the capability through sharding to have massive scale in a decentralized system. I mention that because right now the Beacon Chain doesn't do any of the things that we want it to do, right? It comes to consensus with itself. It comes to consensus with itself in a very sophisticated way uh, with many different consensus entities, with people to be able to participate with relatively small quantities of ETH being validated in production today. And so there is no ice age on the beacon chain, but it essentially has a forcing function because right now there's 2.5 million ETH or more locked in the system. And there's no way that developers in the community at that order of magnitude would allow it to kind of live in parallel with, and not do anything in the long run. So there is this kind of like economic forcing function to make the beacon chain useful for the Ethereum community. And so there is no technical ice age, but there's kind of this economic yeah. load. Whether it makes sense to put in another type of ice age in the long run, this kind of like technical thing like happens in proof of work. It's an interesting debate. There's a number of ways you could do it. One would be like at a certain point, validator rewards start like reducing until they just go to zero. And then there's like no incentive to validate. And so like, there's kind of this like built-in economic bomb or something like that. There's probably a number yeah. of little things you could do. I personally think that in the next few years, we need to get the Ethereum protocol to a place in which it does what we wanted to do. It's sustainable. You know, we get off of proof of work, uh, it's secure. We have this like proof of stake mechanism that's highly secure and, and secured by tons of validators and tons of value and scalable in that we have this new sharded system, uh, which brings massive scale to Ethereum applications. If we get there, I'm pretty comfortable with the, the, the protocol ossifying. I think that we, we kind of need to get this thing into a place where people can kind of like stably understand it and stably have certain guarantees from it. That's a contentious idea and debate in the Ethereum community. Some want to kind of like continue to upgrade and iterate and bring in like the latest cryptography into layer one. So we'll see. Yeah. 
Uh, and I'm sure the debate around whether an ice age should exist in, in Ethereum 2.0 will center around some of those ideas of like ossification versus continual upgrade. We have a little bit of work to do before we get there. Yeah, fair enough. Thanks. Speaking of kind of contentious upgrades that may or may not be baked in at the protocol level of Ethereum 2.0, I noticed that in your recent blog post, Danny, which we will also link in today's show right. notes, is that the Ethereum Improvement Proposal 1559, which is this proposal about fee mechanisms on the Ethereum network, that was something that you, you mentioned would be native to the Ethereum 2.0 protocol. And I know you don't like this naming of Ethereum 1.0 versus 2.0, yeah, yeah. but for the purposes, and I don't mm -hmm. know, maybe we can talk about that later, but for the so, purposes of this conversation. <laughs> I'm happy to give the context there. So for one, I wrote most of the content of that blog post before maybe you've been observing some miners were kind of upset about 1559. I didn't change the content. I just put it out there. I didn't even reread it. So maybe I said something pretty contentious, but we'll see. In terms of the beacon chain is going to be used to come to consensus on two major things that we care about. One is, is the ETH1 chain and the other is, is sharded data. And the ETH1 chain would be largely unchanged in this new context and could be continued to be iterated and upgraded on. And so if 1559, this fee market proposal existed in the ETH1 chain when the proof of work was hot swapped for proof of stake, then it would exist for that user layer kind of transaction fee market in the context of Beacon Chain. If it did not exist prior to that merge, it could be added. What I mean in that 1559 style fee mechanics are native to the Beacon Chain, native to E2, mm. is in the shard, shard data fee market. The way that, and this is a little bit different, but in Ethereum 2.0, in the sharded data layer, there is a native mechanism like 1559 for the fee market around getting data into these shards. It's a little bit different. You're instead of paying for gas, you're probably paying for, for bytes, like the actual like amount of quantity of data you want to get into the shard market. But there is this like going rate of a base fee and there's a burn mechanic and it should provide pretty high guarantees to those that want to engage in the shard data market that they can get data into the sharded system in a timely manner. And it comes with all the fun things that other uh, you know, Ethereum community members like. It comes with stability and reduced incentive to fork because of this like reduced fees going to the validators. And it has a nice burn mechanism, which if you have the triple point guys on a podcast in the future, they'll love to talk about fee burn. Yes, it's native in the sharding component. In the user layer component, this like ETH1 component, which would be natively integrated into the beacon chain in the future, it's not native. And it would be dependent upon whether 1559 went to Ethereum mainnet or not. Gotcha. That clarifies things a lot because I had taken that 1559 from the user layer would be natively baked into the Ethereum 2.0 protocol. But I hear you now that it's actually baked into this, this sharding layer. So what is it that would actually be burned in the sense of the sharding layer? You said some data bytes are things that people pay for, but that it wouldn't necessarily be ETH, right? Well, no, it would be ETH. Oh, it would be. So in Ethereum today, the fee market is around essentially the gas limit, the amount of gas that can occur in a block. There's a, a supply there and then there's demand and there's a market. And the market around that in a 1559 style fee market would dictate the amount of ETH that was burned. And people pay ETH to engage with this market and get transactions on the blockchain. In the sharding component of ETH2, the thing that there is demand for is shard block data. And that's measured in bytes. And so if I want to get shard data, say I'm a rollup or something, and I have some rollup blocks that I want to check into the ETH2 consensus, I have, call it 256 bytes of data 
that I want to chuck into this uh, data availability mechanism, there's going to be a market for the cost in ETH to get data into the blockchain. Similarly, if there was a, which there's planned to be a 1559 style kind of burn and fee mechanism, a portion of that fee to get data into the blockchain uh, would be burned. So similarly, it's just instead of the base unit of things, what the Ethereum chain provides today is kind of like, it provides execution, computation, storage and stuff abstractly in the form of, of the gas limit. Uh, and there's, there's a certain supply of it. And with ETH2, there's going to be a certain amount of data that the system can come to consensus on. Similarly, there'd be a fee market paid in ETH to get data into that consensus mechanism. DeFi has obviously kind of taken over the whole Ethereum landscape. If you Google Ethereum, we're going to see a DeFi app probably pop up. When we're talking about ETH2, we're talking about like these sharding layers and these multiple blockchains. The way I've kind of had explained to me from other developers is these apps will kind of live on a shard. And the hope is that they can kind of speak to each other. But there's been some concern that might not be the case, that there's going to be like some issues speaking across chain. So can you kind of hold the land for me there? Sharding, any two has always kind of been divided into these two phases of rolling it out. First and foremost, sharded data availability, which doesn't have any sort of like state and executioner contracts on it. It's just like this utility of extra data that the Ethereum network knows is available and is there. And then there's always been this thought of extending that instead of just having data availability, consensus on data, to have consensus on additional state and execution and transactions. So essentially like have a number of like Ethereums in parallel that can operate and, and interop and, and communicate with each other. The former of those is, is what we're working on first and foremost and very earnestly today. We've been discussing this probably over the past 12 months, but put out a, a kind of like vision ETH magician post maybe in November of last year which was called something like a roll-up centric uh, ETH2 roadmap. And what yeah. this does is it says today, even today with some ZK roll-ups and soon, tomorrow, the next day, maybe, maybe a month or two from now through optimistic roll-ups, uh, Ethereum's are already going to be through these L2 mechanisms. Um, we can get into it if you want what those actually are and mean. Is going to start experiencing orders of magnitude scaling. And these optimistic roll-ups are particularly exciting because you can do general purpose execution. Uh, so you can have all your DeFi dApps and contracts and stuff live in a roll-up and talk to each other and, and do have composability like we know and love today, but in a much reduced cost zone, or at least a higher supply. You know, obviously, if demand compounds greater than that supply, you can end up with high fees. So we're going to start experiencing relatively high scaling through these L2 uh, operations in the next 3, 6, 12 months. Call sharding coming out in the next 12 to 18 months. Don't quote me on that. I'm sure you will. Valid um, recorded. Yeah, yeah. Can't take it back right. now. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not taking it back. <laughs> with sharded data availability, these complement exceedingly well with these rollup schemes in that a rollup scales with the quantity of L1 data. And what initial sharding gives us is a ton of L1 data. And so these systems, which we expect to be continually kind of increasingly adopted over the next 12 months, would then be given like a 100x multiplier in terms of their scale. And so all of a sudden we're at like pretty massive scale uh, with sharding plus rollups. And then the question becomes, does it make sense if over the course of these two years, we get massive scale through the way these sharded data and rollups complement, does it make sense then to introduce what could be relatively high consensus complexity to get state and execution and transactions across all of these shards? The answer to that question might be no. And that's kind of the thesis of that post from Vitalik was, it might not be worth the consensus complexity. It might not be worth 
dealing with cross-shard transactions. It might not be worth dealing with 64 Ethereum states um, in the layer one consensus. And instead, kind of kicking the curb down into L2, where these systems can kind of like adapt and use the scalable data layer in whatever way they want. The answer to your question is, we're not worrying about that problem right now. There's been much research that's gone into and thought around the UX, around like sharded execution and things. But the current roadmap, at least for the next one to two years, is really get out sharded data, allow the L2 rollup ecosystem to develop, see how these things complement, and see if that's enough. And if that's not enough, likely ETH2 would look like something where you have sharded data, and then you have a small number of like state and execution chains like we have Ethereum today. And so you might have this notion, the difference between like the pure data market, and then you have like some L1 state and transaction chains. I would say even that we're optimistic that with some of the innovations going on in ETH1 clients today and in state management and, and execution, coupled that with statelessness, that you might be able to see a much higher gas limit uh, in the context of like uh, Ethereum transactions. And that complementing with rollups, complementing with sharded data might be pretty damn good. That is the current thesis and what we're operating towards for at least for the next like 18 months. We'll have to put a note for ourselves to definitely check in with you on this state of thinking in a year's time. Because the amount of times this thinking for sharding has evolved has definitely made my head spin. But this is a very interesting development. Building out sharded data is kind of the first step to sharding regardless. And during the course of doing that and releasing it, we'll then have much better information about rollups, where they fit in in the Ethereum ecosystem, and whether they're ultimately going to kind of satisfy the demands of composability, the demands of scaling, and things like that. Again, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. If in, in 12 months that is wrong, we've still worked on sharding and the basis of sharding through this data mechanism, and we'll extend it and bring that additional complexity into layer one. Gotcha. Gotcha. We really appreciate your time, Danny. And this is going to be our, our last question to you. I mean, outside of the continued research on sharding and then the mini upgrade that you guys are planning in what, six months time or somewhere around that summer, what other milestones? Can you talk about the milestones that you expect to reach this year in 2021, either for Ethereum 2.0, but just Ethereum generally, the way that you've seen, say, Ethereum reach its price all-time high just a couple of weeks ago, got a lot more plans for DeFi adoption by different teams. Of course, you know Ethereum 2.0 development the best, but what are like three milestones that you expect to be reached in this year? Mm. So I'll talk about ETH2 first. Early this year, uh, in the next couple of months, I think we're going to have very good uh, specifications on both the sharding and the merge. And these will be operated and worked on in parallel. At some point mid-year, one will probably be selected to go in first, and that one we'll see by the end of the year production grade test nets of either the merge or sharding. There's a chance you could see both, but I think ultimately like engineers are going to have to focus on one or the other. Implicitly, there's kind of a, an interesting decision that needs to be made on a prioritization there. One might be just like some technical considerations. If one's ready, then we should just go ahead and do it. But if both are ready, there might be an interesting decision to be made. I hope to see, and I talked about this over and over again, I hope to see increasingly like pretty massive uh, scale ad adoption of some of these roll-up L2s. In the ZK realm, we might see like a lot of trading, you know, mar automated market makers, decentralized exchange, that kind of stuff. I think they're very well suited to like the particular types of applications you might see on ZK rollups. And in optimistic rollups, I think we might begin to see like the L1 DeFi landscape be ported and start growing inside of these L2 rollups. Um, whether that be 
one that becomes pretty dominant or, or a handful that kind of have their niche in different kind of communities and ecosystems. We'll see. I, I don't know. Beyond that, I think, I mean, I'd hope to see some surprises. I'd hope to see, you know, I think DeFi is a very obvious and pretty incredible use case to see on, on Ethereum. The art market stuff uh, was maybe a bit of a surprise uh, towards the end of last year and has been very exciting. And I hope to see a couple of surprises that come into play. You know, I think there's a lot of promise in identity solutions. Um, I think there's a lot of promise in maybe like decentralized communities and things on the internet. And we shall see. Um, Do you own any yeah. crypto punks? I don't. Oh, I don't. No. My wife owns a ton of crypto kitties. She was like a crypto kitty <laughs> early adopter, but I, I, haven't, I haven't looked at that market. I feel like we could get you a custom one. I feel like there's, there's someone who wants to do that for free. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're living for the surprises. Will and I, that's like what we live for as reporters and analysts. We want to see the unexpected hard forks, the unexpected uh, booms in certain <laughs> Wait, markets. We, want, we want the drama. Um, yeah, <laughs> so so that's good to hear, though, your your hopes and predictions for Yeah, I mean, and, and similarly, I'm so heads down in this this like L1 game that I love like coming up for air and seeing something like totally unexpected and crazy in the application. Layer. Yeah. So, so I, I live for the surprises too. Well, for anybody who does want to reach out to Danny to keep up to date with what he's working on or just reach out to him with further questions, you can find him on Twitter. His handle will be found in today's show notes. Yeah, cool. I had a great time chatting. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. And also, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to Will and I's weekly newsletter, Valid Points, by going to coindesk.com. You can keep up to date with our staking journey as Ethereum 2.0 validators, which as of the time of this recording, hasn't had too much progress yet, but it's getting there. We're close. Um, <laughs> we're very close. So you can keep up to date with us about that through the Valid Points newsletter and of course, through this podcast. We're going to be back next week chatting with David Hoffman from Bankless about his view of ETH as the triple point asset. You don't want to miss it. So please do tune in. And finally, if you have any questions that you want answered on the podcast, you can just connect with Will and I via email at research at coindesk.com or on Twitter at Coindesk Data. So join us again next week for mapping out Ethereum 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. See ya. Thanks. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine Kim and Will Foxley, with guest Danny Ryan. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Abloom and Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. <laughs>